obviously with it being the Christmas season, attention is being drawn to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to take some thoughts this morning from verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. As you can see in your Bibles, uh, this is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 and verse 14. Now, our particular focus this morning is going to be at the end of the text and the name given, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. I'm sure as we're all aware, or if we're not aware, we refer to this as the incarnation. Uh, that is, the second person of the Trinity became a human being, became an embryo in the womb of Mary. And so we're going to focus our thoughts upon the incarnation. I just want to tease out uh, three implications that we can draw from uh, the reality of the incarnation for us to reflect upon this morning. So the first implication of the incarnation is that God is revealed to us. God is revealed to us. In Shakespeare's play, Juliet asks Romeo, what is in a name? Of course, they are from two different families that are divided. She's making the point that we're only really separated by name. What is in a name? Names can mean a lot. They can be significant or they may not mean much at all. When it comes to this particular baby born in the manger, there is a great deal of significance, as we can see, in terms of his name. His name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, as we read that, you may say to yourself, well, isn't his name Jesus? In fact, we find a couple of verses earlier as the uh, angel interacts with Joseph and declares to him that his wife is uh, pregnant, uh, his name will be Jesus, verse 21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so is there any confusion here? Is there any contradiction? On the one hand, we have the name Jesus. On the other hand, we have the name Emmanuel. Well, both are his name, both of them. They both reflect who he is. Jesus is the name given by which people would interact with him, just as you have a name and people interact with you. Jesus was the ordinary everyday name by which people would address him. Uh, as one of the young children pointed out, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. So the name Jesus reveals his work, why he came here. The name Emmanuel, on the other hand, reveals his identity, who he actually is, God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God come in the flesh. He is Jehovah's agent of salvation because he came from heaven. He is entirely pure and without sin, and he alone, being both son of God and son of man, is able to save us from our sins. The angel, in speaking to Joseph, actually pointed to this uh, before any mention was given of his name and the meaning of his name. Look at verse 20. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Of course, as we understand, Joseph thought that his fiancée had been unfaithful. They had not been together, yet she's pregnant. Uh, he is contemplating how best to manage this. Uh, he is thinking of annulling 
their arrangement to be married because she's been unfaithful and uh, the angel turns up as it were and announces to Joseph she has not been unfaithful. Uh, she, excuse me, she uh, is with child by way of the Holy Spirit. A miraculous event has taken place in her womb, a supernatural event, and she is pregnant by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, herein lies the wonder of all wonders, the mystery of the ages. There are a great many things that separates Christianity from the religions of this world, and this is certainly one of the key things, the incarnation, that God should become a human being. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and without controversy or without question, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. It is truly a, a mysterious and wondrous thing that God should become a human being and it raises a multitude of questions as to what this involves and how the, the human nature of Jesus interacts with the divine nature of Jesus. The Christian faith teaches that Jesus is one person, but he has two natures, one human and one divine. And it does raise endless speculation and questions and questions for which we don't have answers. How is it that God could become an embryo? You know, something no bigger than the, the size of your nail. And there he is in the womb of his earthly mother, yet he is the one who created all things. He orders all things throughout the history of human life. He actually supports the life of his mother as she supports him. How do you understand that? How is it that he organises all of the affairs of the world while he is a tiny baby nestled on her breast? It's beyond human comprehension in many ways, of course. The creed written in Chalcedon, the famous Chalcedon Creed, goes a long way in giving some articulation as to the two natures of Jesus Christ, but it by no means answers all of the questions. How is it that the Son of God had to learn and to grow in stature before God and men? He learnt to walk as any ordinary child learns to walk, otherwise he isn't truly human. He cried when he soiled himself. He learned to count and, uh, and to spell and he learned to trade as a carpenter. And he was very ordinary in a sense and yet at the same time he is completely divine and without sin. How do we understand the two natures working together? Well, we can't. Not only do creeds and confessions not answer these questions, the Bible itself doesn't answer any of these questions. It simply states to us by way of fact that God became a human being. And importantly, insofar as we are concerned this morning, through the incarnation, God reveals himself to men. He makes himself known. Remember in John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus begins to talk to his disciples of his impending departure to heaven, that he is going prepare a place for them. There are many mansions in his father's house and he goes to prepare a place for them and they're quite excited and, and want to know more information. And uh, 
Philip blurts out to, to Jesus, show us the Father, show us the Father. This is in John 14, 8 to 10. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You stop and you pause and, and think about the profundity of this. You've seen me, you've looked into the face of Almighty God. In seeing me, you have seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. What does the incarnation do? It puts a face on Almighty God. He becomes personal. Now we're not saying that God was in impersonal prior to the incarnation. I'm not suggesting that. But if you go back into the Old Covenant or the Old Testament Scriptures, what you will discover when you read about God is that he comes across to us in abstract and terrifying forms. He's not overly personal in a sense, we might say. You think about this in terms of the life of Moses. How does he appear to Moses? As a fire in a burning bush. Abstract and strange. The bush isn't, cons uh, isn't consumed, but there's a voice speaking from the flames to him. But he's standing on holy ground. And you think about Moses when he gets the law on Sinai and the mountain shakes and there's flames up there and smoke and lightning and thunder and the people down below are terrified, absolutely terrified. And they say to Moses, don't let him speak to us. Let him speak to you and you can tell us what he says. They want to keep their distance. You think after the, uh, that occasion, after um, uh, the idolatry with the golden calf, of course, when Moses comes down and the children of Israel are, are uh, engaging in idolatry and uh, Moses intercedes for them and... Uh, um, God declares, and I'm just paraphrasing, that he's not going to wash his hands of Israel, that he will remain with his people. And uh, Moses makes that request, show me your glory. And uh, God hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by him. And God says to Moses, no one can look upon the face of God and live. And somehow, in a strange and mysterious way, he... he he kind of covers Moses' eyes, we are told, with his hand. And Moses just sees the tail end of his glory. Can't look at God and live. It's another mysterious encounter. Fraught with danger. Look upon me and you die. Those times when Moses came into the presence of God and his face shone like the sun. And again, the children of Israel were terrified. And then when God leads them, uh, through the wilderness, how did he do it? By way of a fiery pillar at night and a cloud of, uh, or a, a pillar of cloud uh, during the day. It's abstract, it's mysterious, it's, it's fearful in a sense. Through Jesus Christ, God becomes accessible. Jesus puts a face to God. People can approach without fear of death. Jesus didn't say to anybody, look upon me and you will die. On the contrary, he invites people to come. 
People could look upon him, they could listen to him, they could follow him and they could ask him questions, they could interact with him. Well, what does this mean? What did you mean when you said that? We're going presently through the Gospel of Mark. We're coming now to the last third of Mark's Gospel where Jesus begins to make his way into Jerusalem. But the whole of the Gospel is taken up with Jesus interacting with people, talking with them, performing miracles eating food with them and having fellowship with them and sometimes rebuking them. The incarnation does not mean that God is any less glorious or holy, but it does make him more inviting. If I can put it that way, it does make God inviting. Outside of Jesus Christ, God is a terrifying prospect, an absolutely terrifying prospect. And his appearances in the Old Testament are almost invariably unsettling, are unsettling. So firstly, the first implication of the incarnation is that God is revealed to us in a way that he had not been previously. The second implication of the incarnation, God demonstrates that he is for us. God demonstrates that he is for us. So when Mary gives birth in the stable in Bethlehem, the course of human history changed. Up until this point of time, everything in relation to God's dealings with human beings had been at a distance. I've already made the point and emphasised his appearances were abstract and frightening. And he always appears at a distance to his people and in dealing with human beings. And this, of course, is as a result of the fall, a consequence of the fall. People in their sins could not approach a holy and a pure God. God saved people by way of a temporary covenant. A covenant that did not actually deal with the guilt of our sins. It dealt with sin only in a symbolic way. And that, of course, as you know, was through the death of animals in a tabernacle or temple. Forgiveness was only given to human beings on the basis of a new and better covenant that would be established in the future. One of the things, again, that we see throughout the Old Testament is the idea that God is removed. He is detached and distant as a consequence of sin, sin that had not been dealt with. Look at the ministry of prophets. Prophets, of course, play a a major role in the Old Testament. Why were the prophets? Because God very rarely ever spoke directly to ordinary people. He revealed his will through special chosen ones who then went and spoke to Israel, to the people. See that with Moses. Oh, don't let him speak to us. Let him speak to you. You come and tell us what he's saying. All idea of prophets is distance. Priests, same thing. Yes, people could pray to God and they did pray to God, but they were still detached from God. They had to make their confessions of sin through priests. Well, they could make the confessions of sin on their own, but they needed the ministry of priests. Priests acted as mediators. 
They slaughtered the animals on their behalf. They interceded on behalf of the people. The people didn't really come directly into the presence of God themselves. They needed priests to do that for them. God was at a distance. You even think of the temple itself. God visited one chamber in the temple, one time in the year on the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could go into his presence. The Holy of Holies, where God entered, was distinct from the chamber associated with the the ordinary priests. That was distinct again from the rank-and-file Jews. That chamber was distinct once more from the court of the Gentiles. The temple and the ministry of priests and prophets all speak about a God who is distant in many ways and detached from his people. He deals with sin only in a temporary and symbolic way. Of course, for sinners to be reconciled to God and to enjoy fellowship with God, a better covenant had to be established. A covenant which truly takes away the guilt of sin. And that first covenant, being only temporal, it pointed to and anticipated this new and better covenant. What lies at the heart of this better covenant, this new covenant? It's God becoming a man. It's God becoming a human being. God entering the fray. God taking on our nature. Jesus, being both God and man, is able to bring together both God and sinful human beings. Hence it is called a new and better covenant. It succeeded where the old covenant failed. That covenant was only ever preparatory, pointing the way to the one who would come. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so this new covenant, of which we belong, revolves entirely around the idea of the incarnation. God becoming a man. And what does it say to us? It says to us that God is for us, he is not against us. He has not washed his hands of sinful humanity. Let us not misunderstand here. At Christmas time and Easter and on many other occasions, of course, we will focus upon the love of God and rightly so. Love of God is an important issue. It comes up time and time and time again in Scripture. But let us not forget the fact that God is angry with sin. Sin is not just some minor and irrelevant issue that he overlooks because he's generous of heart. Sin is rebellion against his authority. It is to dismiss God. It is to reject his fellowship and to turn our backs on the one that made us. Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Colossians 3 verse 6, Because of these things, there's a whole list of sins there, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. 
There are two realities that we have to hold together and we need to maintain them all the time, dovetailing them together. On the one hand, sin infuriates God. God is righteous and sin is not accidental. Sin is willful rebellion. It is to resist the will of God. It is to reject what he has made known. It is to make self God-like. We will live life our own way. That's what sin is. On the one hand, God is annoyed with sin. He's angered. At the same time, God loves sinners. What does the incarnation say to us? God is full of mercy and compassion. God desires the salvation of sinners. The scripture is abundantly clear. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Over and over again, we are exhorted to take hold of the mercy that is extended to us. God resists none who come to us. It is for this reason that he sent his son, that we might be saved. I think sometimes people find these two ideas difficult to maintain together. Anger and love. They are both true. Is God angry with the world? Absolutely. God is sickened by the sin in the world. He's holy. And yet at the same time, God loves the world. God loves men and women and boys and girls made in his own image. When we think about it, uh, anger and love, they're not that hard to reconcile. Um, We all have parents. I'm sure uh, uh, many times are angry with us. We know that they are angry because they loved us. Those of us who have children, if you're anything like me, you've been angry plenty of times and frustrated and pulling your hair out. Um, I thought that that would go away as they got older, but it hasn't, perhaps to some degree. Um, Why am I angry? Because I love them. Because I want better for them. I don't want them to be ungodly. I don't want them to make stupid mistakes. It's not unrealistic at all. It's, It's very ordinary, in fact. God is both angry and full of love. We are told in Scripture, are we not to love our enemies? I'm sure our enemies anger us. There is such a thing as righteous anger. We may not like the way they treat us. We may be justifiably angry at their rudeness or, or their, their unjust treatment of us and yet we are called to love them. And scripture itself holds up God as our example in this. Jesus holds up God as our example. Matthew chapter 5, 44 and 45. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God loves his enemies. He blesses all men. He gives to all good things. The Bible is very clear. It's while we were God's enemies that he sent his son to die for us. He didn't send his son to die because we wanted to be saved, because there was something lovely about us. He sent his son to die because we were his his, uh, his enemies. He sent his son to die while we were in a state of rebellion. 
The only reason that we love him and have any interest in spiritual things in the kingdom of God is because he first loved us. God was angry with us, yet he loved us. And it's because we have had bestowed upon us the gift of salvation because we have received his love that we in turn love him. Friends, if God preferred if, if sorry, if God preferred justice over mercy, there would be no incarnation. Now Isaiah speaks of God's justice being his strange work, or rather his judgment. It's his strange work. God will be glorified in the punishment of the wicked, but God delights in saving people from their sins. He delights in showing mercy. If God preferred justice over mercy, there would be no incarnation. The incarnation unequivocally demonstrates that God is for us. He is for humanity, not against humanity. The fact that he is angry by no means takes away the love that he has for human beings. Now, the third and final implication of the incarnation, God promises to dwell in us. So God is revealed to us, God demonstrates that he is for us, and then thirdly, God promises to dwell within us. So Jesus came among us because he's for us, and he is for us that he might dwell in us. The aim of salvation is to be brought into union with, Jesus Christ. This was promised in the Old Covenant and it was promised by Christ himself. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. John chapter 14, 16 and 17 Jesus speaking to his disciples And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's a sense in which God had always been with his people, even though at a distance. And God is with his disciples and Jesus is making the point, God is with you, the spirit is with you, but he will be in you. You will know his ministry in a far greater dimension than what you know now. This was the promise made throughout the Old Testament and by Christ himself. God not just with you, but in you. And the apostles pick up on this frequently in their epistles. Only now it's not by way of promise, but it's a reality. Romans 8 verse 11 But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27, Christ is in you the hope of glory. What is the certain hope that we have of an inheritance that will never be taken away? What is the certain hope we have of better things to come beyond this world? The reality of the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 6, 19 to 20. This is written in relation to sexual immorality and the the need to, to not live as unbelievers, sexually immoral. Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is the very temple of Almighty God. You know, in our Reformed tradition, we place a lot of emphasis on the doctrine of justification, and rightly so. We've just celebrated uh, the. 500th anniversary of Luther posting his thesis on the uh, church door at Wittenberg, you know, a monumental event, a great event of uh, really insurmountable historical significance. Um, and it focuses, of course, upon the issue of justification. There's a sense in which we can't um, overstate the importance of justification. It, it's, it's dealing with the legal aspect of our salvation. But I want to emphasise to you this morning, and something I think we need to remember as Protestants and as Reformed Protestants, justification is not an end in itself. Let me say it again, justification is not an end in itself. Justification is a means to an end. The aim of salvation is union with Jesus Christ. It's to be brought into fellowship with the God that we, are, we have been removed from as a consequence of our sins. The aim of salvation is to know God and to walk with God and to love God and to have fellowship with God. It is for us to be joined again to the one who made us, Jesus Christ dwelling within. Justification is a means to that end, not an end in itself. Justification is the removal of our the, the guilt of our law-breaking. It is a, a legal thing. When my wife and I celebrate our anniversary, we're getting close to 30 years now, not quite 30 years. I don't pull out a certificate and say, oh, look, we're legally married. Look, it says it here. Remember signing, dear, in 1991? We don't celebrate simply the legality of it. We celebrate our union. We celebrate the love that exists between us. There is so much more to salvation than justification. Of course justification is critical. But it's not an end in itself. And we need to remember that. The aim of salvation is to become the dwelling place of Jesus Christ, that we would love God more and more and more and rejoice in our Saviour and walk with him in fellowship. There's a sense in which this great reality of union being joined to Christ is prefigured the Son of God being in the womb of Mary. He became a human being and dwelt within her for that short nine-month period that he might dwell in all of us. Almost like she's a type in a certain sense. We can take this a step further. I'll be concluding shortly, but we can take this a step further. Union with Christ means that one day we will be completely transformed into his likeness. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is profound and it is magnificent. One day we will lay eyes on him. That is our great hope. We live by faith at the moment. We believe things that we can't handle and see. Realities that lie beyond this world. John is saying one day we will lay our eyes upon him and when we do, we will be transformed into his very likeness. He is at work in our hearts now, making us more and more godly, I trust, sanctifying us. One day that work will be completed. When we step into his presence through death, Perhaps he will return before we die, but when we step into his presence, we will be completely transformed into his very image. The Apostle Peter says that believers have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Stop and think about this. Partakers of the divine nature. Of course, we look forward to a future resurrection. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of our bodies being transformed into glorious bodies. As we think about the incarnation, we can see a picture of progression. As a consequence of the fall, God is detached and he's distant. Look through the Old Testament, and I know that you're all familiar with this. He is abstract, and most often he is terrifying. His presence descended upon one chamber in the temple once in the year, and only one man could enter in. Everybody else was removed, and they didn't want to go in. Through the incarnation, God comes among us. A face is given to the Almighty. No longer is it, look upon me and you'll die, but rather it's come and draw near and see and listen. Jesus reveals God in the flesh. He shows us the character and the purposes of God in in, in a personable way, in a way that we can comprehend, in a way that's inviting. He demonstrates that God is for us. Fruit of the incarnation, God in us. Now that the atonement has been made, Jesus has died and risen, all who put their trust in him receive his spirit. Believers become God's temple. He doesn't just draw close. He's not just with us, though that's true. He dwells permanently within. And the outcome of this eventually is complete transformation. You see the idea of progression. God is detached He comes among us, we are saved, he dwells. In conclusion, sometimes the question is asked, what is something worth? How do you place a value upon something? Purchasing a house, what's the house worth? Sports memorabilia. I was looking on a website the other day for reasons that I can't remember. I love sport, but um, I happen to be on this website. And people spend particularly in America, hundreds of thousands of dollars on, you know, a baseball bat and jerseys and and even millions. And we all sit here and think that's ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous to the person purchasing the item. What's the item worth? It's worth whatever they're prepared to pay. What is something worth? Whatever somebody is prepared to outlay. 
to take hold of that thing. What is a human being worth to God? What is the soul of a human being worth to God? The answer lies in the incarnation. God was prepared to become a man. Have you ever stopped to think about this? And I say this with a a word of caution. When Jesus became a human being, the Trinity was forever changed. Do you understand that? In order to save human beings, the nature of the Trinity was changed. Not the essential nature of God, which can never change, but humanity was added to deity. Who is it that's seated at the right hand of the Father? It's a man. And he is seated there as flesh and blood. Do you realise that? Humanity was forever added to deity. There is a man in the Trinity and will forever so be. What is a human being worth to God? Look at the incarnation. God was prepared to become an embryo. God was prepared to become an embryo to die. A humble life as a servant and to die as a felon to be imputed with the guilt of human beings to take upon himself a guilt not his own that we might become righteous in him. As attention is drawn at Christmas to the baby in the manger, let us remember who it is that's there. It speaks to us of the value of human beings in the eyes of God. Contemplating the incarnation is not meant to be a mere academic exercise to stretch our minds and raise endless numbers of questions. Rather, contemplating and meditating upon the incarnation ought to be an act of devotion that stimulates love and joy and thanksgiving. Thinking about the incarnation is meant to enlarge our hearts and fill us with a resolve to follow him in light of all that he has done for us. Friends, this morning, let us never cease to be filled with wonder that God should become a man. Let us never cease to be filled with thanksgiving and humility. He who left left the highest realms of heaven became an ordinary human being. He wasn't born into a palace, but to a common family in an out-of-the-way, ramshackle town that nobody would want to go to. It was a contemptible place, Nazareth. He lived an ordinary life. He didn't just suffer from Gethsemane. His humility began as an embryo. You know, he was conscious of the fact he was going to Calvary as a boy. Are you aware of that? He didn't bear a cross just when he entered into the streets of Jerusalem. There's a sense in which he bore a cross for much of his life. He was conscious of who he was from the age of 12. He read the scriptures. He knew they were referring to him. He knew what his mission was from at least the age of 12, maybe younger. Oh, the incarnation ought to fill us with wonder and thanksgiving. And let us also, at the same time, let the incarnation cultivate within us hearts of compassion. Compassion for lost people people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, people who are still distant from God and alienated from him. How can we look at the wonder of the incarnation but not be moved towards others, to share with them the gospel and to see others brought into the kingdom of God? Because that's what it's all about. The incarnation is about God's compassion for sinners. Let us likewise have hearts full of compassion, be 
motivated and desirous to take the gospel to this fallen world. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning and may we all enjoy this Christmas period together. Amen.